Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on September 29th, 2023. Paul Hickman is the founder of Urban Ashes, a pioneering company that advocates for urban wood utilization. The company transforms fallen urban trees into valuable local resources. Urban Ashes designs, develops, and implements urban wood utilization for infrastructure in collaboration with municipalities, local organizations, and businesses to support the local community. In addition to salvaging urban wood, Paul's organization provides meaningful employment and business opportunities to formerly incarcerated and justice-impacted youth. This commitment resonates throughout the community, providing safer and healthier neighborhoods through the people and trees connection. Paul is also one of the founding members of the national organization, the Urban Wood Network. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Paul. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Can you give us a little idea of how you wound up in urban wood and how you wound up with a company named Urban Ashes? It kind of sounds ominous. <laughs> yeah, it's it's had a few um, comments on its name over the years. Uh, some of them pretty interesting. Uh, my connection originally evolved out of some um, starting at 15, I actually was uh, painting billboards and got into environmental graphics for roughly about 15 years. And uh, at that point, I was getting pretty tired of a lot of the materials I was using. I was using a lot of pretty nasty materials from sheet, a lot of sheet PVC, polyurea, a lot of not so great coatings. That was my day job. And I was also designing uh, custom furniture. Uh, sort of studio furniture for galleries and commission pieces. And that allowed me to start experimenting with new materials. And so I started you know, trying to find different materials out there. And this is mid-90s or so and discovered uh, things like sinker logs coming out of the, the Mississippi River and then ultimately led me to realizing there's this whole green building movement going on pretty heavy out on the West Coast in the San Francisco area, as well as kind of up in the Seattle, Oregon area as well. I uprooted out of Chicago at that time and moved to San Francisco and pretty thoroughly embedded myself with an organization called Ecotimber, who is one of the first lumber companies to really prove that sustainable lumber is a viable business and a viable industry. And I went there to drive a forklift for $9 an hour in Berkeley, which was about the equivalent of you know $3 an hour where I live so, but it quickly, pretty quickly changed. I became their retail sales manager and gave me a crash course on all things sustainable wood and sustainable lumber. And as part of that, one of the supply chains that came in through there was urban wood. I had never heard of that term. 
And when we're talking about urban wood, we're talking about trees that have come down for any reason other than their wood value. Uh, at Eco Timber, they were predominantly street trees, you know, municipal street trees that were coming down. And that was my introduction uh, to urban wood in the, about 1998. And so Eco Timber actually sold in 2001. So I had to kind of find another career again and reinvent myself and decided to move back to the Midwest. Still trying to figure out why I did that. Um, but uh, anyways, I, I moved back to the Midwest and ended up in Ann Arbor. Fast forward to 2002 and the introduction of a, a little green beetle, um, otherwise known as the Emerald Ash Borer. And that um, definitely dragged me, I wouldn't say kicking and screaming, but definitely dragged me really deep into urban wood utilization. Myself and three others at that time launched an organization called the Urban Wood Project. There's a couple other urban wood projects out there now, uh, but I believe we were the original Urban Wood Project. I'm not 100% sure of that. Somebody mm -hmm. can fact check me on that. But uh, we launched that to put together a network of mills to utilize those ash trees, but also any other trees, you know, any other urban trees that were coming down to um, maximize the utilization of those. And that was really my full, at that point, it was full on leaving my sort of design career and walking headlong into urban wood utilization. Um, between 2002 to 2009, uh, all the way up to the point really where 2009, actually, this is a good story, I think. Um, standing in, in line uh, for a Loudon Wainwright show at the Ark in Ann Arbor, uh, one of the other guys that I helped start the Urban Wood Project with said to me, he's like, hey, you know, we're selling all this lumber here in Ann Arbor, but you know, we're really not making an impact nationally. You know, we need to come up with a product that we can scale. And he looks at me and says, all right, you're the designer, come up with this. I was like, okay, great. And, he, and then he throws out there even another you know, demand, re request, whatever, and says, um, and it needs to be manufactured with transitional and disabled labor. And I looked at him like, okay, disabled labor, I can figure out what that is, but what the hell is transitional labor? And I thought it was day labor um, kind of situation. But what he was talking about is folks that are formerly incarcerated, uh, which has ultimately become a very, very big part of my work, uh, everyday work. And pretty quickly outlaunched Urban Ashes as a manufacturer of picture frames and furniture. We were actually focused on picture frames because I'd actually been doing a lot of prints with my oldest son at that time, these collaboration prints, but we were making a lot of our own frames. And I'm a wood butcher. Uh, even though I'm a good, I think I'm a good finisher and a good designer, I'm a wood butcher. There's no doubt about it. So I was like, all right, if I can make picture frames, we can teach somebody pretty quickly to make picture frames. Though I did learn on a professional level they're a lot harder to make than, you know, than most people think, especially when you get to that fourth corner, you know, getting them all to everything to line up. So anyways, we focused on picture frames and we introduced urban wood utilization to the picture frame world. Nobody knew, had any clue what that was. So there was a lot of education and we pretty much changed the picture frame industry, I think, in, in definitely in the United States, especially when we started going to our first big trade shows. You know, if you go to trade shows, most people have been there. There's, you know, one or two booths or you know, vendors that for some reason just grab all the attention and there's 20 people deep at their table. And yep. we happened to be that one the first two years. It was uh, very right. bizarre, but also exhilarating. Going back to log recovery out of the Mississippi. Do you happen to know what kind of timber they were getting out of there and what the process was for getting logs up from the bottom of the mighty Mississippi? Specific species, I don't remember the actual logs that were coming out because I, I never actually sourced those. I ultimately, the first materials I got ultimately came out of some of the warehouses that were being torn down along the Mississippi. I do mm. know, you know the general process of how they remove uh, logs. They'll put sort of a, a hammock underneath, kind of slings underneath the logs right. um, and inflate balloons is, is probably the most common way, uh, whether it's out of uh, rivers or lakes. Um, kind of situation. Interesting. Uh, but I have actually never utilized um, or really sold any of those. But that was really the first one I ran across. I was like, okay, what the hell is this? This has got a hell of a story. I got to include this furniture. And I'm thinking that would have been virgin timber then coming down from uh, oh, yeah. Wisconsin yeah, yeah. and Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know a whole lot more about it since then, but um, you know, lakes that would just be completely covered with logs and you know, certain ones sink or lumber companies go out of business and they literally just leave it, you know, to float there for a little while and then they ultimately sink. Yeah, you know, I've seen some I still yeah. 
I have a little sample of a, a piece of dug fur that is was a sinker log up in the northwest and it looks like mdf the rings are so tight you almost need a microscope to see the rings wow uh, it's ridiculous wow and then back to berkeley and your work at echo timber what kind of logs were getting processed there yeah most of what eco timber was doing was um, bringing logs from around the world and, you know for a lot of community forestry programs most of those were tied to native uh, or the local forestry programs in the US a good example is we were doing a lot of work with the Menominee tribe up in Wisconsin and uh, part of Michigan but then also doing stuff in Central America as well as like Papua New Guinea a very unique species a lot of lesser known species to an underutilized species that was a big part too that um, you know, we generally think of, you know, a handful of species of woods that we know, and there's obviously hundreds of, you know, to thousands of species of trees, and a majority of those are viable for lumber. And often those get um, skipped over or, at worse, ripped out in the process of trying to get to the ones that we do know. So introducing those to the market was a big part of what we were doing. That's interesting. One more question about ash utilization and i mm -hmm. apologize bit of a curveball it's you know we're heading into the baseball postseason i have noticed <laughs> that the baseball bats we were at a game and four bats shattered in one game do you happen to have an opinion on why ash continue to do that is it directly in, involved with uh, emerald ash borer Yes and no. Um, my first question would be, how did they shatter? And then my next question is, I would wonder if they actually are ash because they do use other species. They use maple um, as well. And right. um, I believe they're testing some other you know, species and potentially composites um, because being dependent on any single species is dangerous. Yeah, I'm sure Louisville Slugger has you know, had a high level of stress since the introduction of the emerald ash borer. Now, they have some large forests in upstate New York that you know, they probably talk about build, trying to build a wall around them uh, and protect it uh, as much as possible. So my question is, when those shattered, I don't know if you saw them, what did they look like when they shattered? Do you remember, did they explode or just break in half? Uh, both ways. The club would come off. The shattering I would describe as uh, like coming off in plates, but I also saw the head of the bat snap off in the more conventional way that a bat would break. Yeah, I'm guessing it was another species because one of the benefits of ash, um, it splinters heavily. You know, you sort of see a lot of the, yeah. the bats would break, they would splinter and often kind of stay together to some degree. But they, um, so when they do splinter, they don't it really explode because it's a really um, stringy grain. And so it stays together relatively well. And obviously you get have a great resiliency, but in things like maple, it's a really, really short grain. And so when that does break, it kind of just explodes. Uh, it's I not gotcha. all intertwined and woven together. Isn't hickory used too? Because hickory is a really good dirty bat. I'm not sure. The dilemma with hickory, it's one of the big, you know, we're getting, we're getting in the technology of baseball bats. And I'm, I'm going to make sure I go back and, and really, you know, hopefully I'm even well, remotely correct to put it in there because I've, I've heard hickory being used Hickory is bats. heavy, though. Hickory is it's heavy. heavy. Um, compared, it's, it's relatively heavy compared yeah. to its positive characteristics, uh, um, where ash is much lighter. Mm -hmm. um, for its pot, you know, compared to its pot, you know, its resiliency and its strength and all of those things. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds where hickory, you're, you're, hickory's heavy. Yeah. Hickory used to be used for wagon wheels because it was so sturdy. Oh yeah. It's incredibly durable. It's yeah, very it's, durable. You know, that and black locusts and, and yes. some other woods are, you know, incredibly durable, at least in the industry that I know, you know, in the wood industry that I know in language that use the term rowy. Um, and I don't know that that's even a technical term or a real word, but where the grain is incredibly interwoven with itself. And so it's very durable. Elm is another one. Um, Right. You know, that is very durable and tough. And you'll see it on tool handles and, you know, things like that that require, you know, the durability or truck beds. Mm -hmm. I, I have a question right now there in the news. Um, they've been talking and just, just the last several days. They've been talking about the um, they believe that the extinction of black ash is going to happen. The native populations up in your region utilize black 
ash for basket weaving and a lot of other utilitarian uses for the wood. And they're talking about emerald ash, but I know that emerald ash borer has been through your area already. Has it, has it reemerged or is this another area of the upper Midwest that's getting invaded by the emerald ash borer? Yeah, where I, I'm in Southern Southeast Michigan, uh, which is predominantly white and green ash. Uh, right, there is like some us. black there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's some black there, but the majority of the black ash is up in the Upper Peninsula, mm-hmm. um, and then heading into Wisconsin and Minnesota. So there, the western part of the Upper Peninsula um, still has some black ash. I was actually just talking to somebody the other day, and they were hiking up in the Porcupine Mountains and ran across a a pretty spectacular black ash. So even though the Upper Peninsula is part of Michigan. Uh, obviously, for those who don't know, there's a there's a big five mile um, straight between the lower peninsula and the upper peninsula, and the emerald ash borer cannot fly that distance. It's easily transported by humans across that distance, um, but it's really had to go all the way around uh, Lake Michigan to get into the upper peninsula. Uh, is a big part of it, but then also same with Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. But they're still they're not as far along as uh, Lower Peninsula, Michigan, as far as the devastation of ash. So they're still going through it. I would say the Lower Peninsula predominantly is gone. Um, I will also say that I have about four white ashes that have volunteered in my yard in the last five years. One that's about 15 feet, and I'm fighting the deer more than the emerald ash borer right now to keep the deer off of them. Which is right. a challenge. And we, so. we have the same thing happening here in Pennsylvania. We lost all of our They're green. They're coming back a little. And white ash. And actually, I had one growing on my patio garden. It was about eight feet tall. And I was like nursing it along. Um, yeah. But then it got so big that I really had to get rid of it. Um, but yeah, their, their seedlings are coming up. Yeah, most definitely. You see yeah, I, I understand the seed bank can, can hang around for quite a few years. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. because that that was my first thought is, you know, where's the parent of this tree? Um, but I understand you know, the seed bank can hang around for quite a while. Mother mm-hmm. Nature likes to survive. So they'll do their best to, you know, to survive. Sure thing. In some of your uh, emails, or at least you, you made an excellent point, uh, Paul, about the, the three pieces of the pie when we talk about trees and, and the culture around them. One is, you know, the need to plant trees the need to maintain them, and then the last piece of the pie being the need to process them if and when they die and and need to be cut down. For our listeners, even I think this is probably our fourth or fifth uh, show that has kind of circled back to urban wood. Why is it so important to properly process wood from the standpoint of managing our carbon output? Uh, it's extremely important. Um, and I'll, and I'll answer your question directly in a second, but I also want to recently, I've come up with sort of an analogy about the, the three pieces of the pie situation, uh, to where I think folks might be able to relate to it a little bit more. I've started to say, you'll think about, you know, you're 12 years old and your parents help you start a banking account and, you know, you open up a savings account and over the next, you know, 50, 60 years, you continue to invest in that. You may you know, invest in other things, but you invest in all of that. Then you've, you, know, you spend all that time. And then once that comes to maturity and you're going to retire, um, you decide, it's like, you know, hey, I'm not going to take the full value of what's in that bank account. I'm going to take about two cents on the dollar because that's what chips are about equal to. Um, when you take a tree of that, you know, you've planted a tree and we're very good at being passionate about planting trees and not quite as good about taking care of them, but that's you know, you know, still on the radar. And we don't even think about the last part. So I think about it as like you get the, the value of that tree actually environmentally can be, can be greater than it was when it was alive. And my reason why I say that is if you actually utilize that wood indefinitely as a long-lived wood good, that carbon continues to stay sequestered with inside. Trees or or wood is 50% carbon by weight. So there's a a huge amount of carbon stored in our trees 
And we're pretty aware of that on the front end again, is that you know, we're aware of how much carbon is in there as far as our canopy and things like that. But once those trees do come down and we decide to typically, in the case of especially in a municipality, they're almost entirely chipped. And because there's so many chips available, that typically a lot, a very large percentage of those end up in the landfill. And those end up turning into, you're obviously releasing all the carbon and then potentially releasing methane as well, which is, we know is a whole lot worse. So to give rough numbers, in the US, it's estimated there's roughly 46 million metric tons of furniture grade lumber that's available every year. And if you do the math on that, that's roughly 23 million metric tons of carbon that uh, is released every single year into our atmosphere from our decaying trees that we've decided to chip up instead of turning into a viable wood product. And a number that I just kind of realized or ran uh, recently and I discovered that number, that 23 million metric tons of carbon is equal to 1.75% of the U.S.'s entire uh, CO2 emissions, which is crazy, in my opinion. It's something that we are we are generating sort of unknowingly, and we're, we're taking a valuable resource and destroying it to create that release. So it's this double hit, in my opinion. We're wasting a resource, and we are releasing vast volumes of of carbon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So out of that that 23 million metric tons of carbon um, that is lost from furniture grade lumber every year uh, in the U.S., to put it into context, specifically in the tree world, uh, that's the equipment because we talk, you know, obviously planting trees is really, really important. But what we don't realize is if we went after this uh, material that is is literally right there, that would, and we captured, and this is a big assumption, obviously, but if we captured all of that uh, 23 million metric tons and utilized it in durable wood goods, that would be the equivalent of planting about 1.4 billion trees a year and growing them for 10 years. Wow. So I call this the low-hanging fruit, or it's not just the low-hanging fruit. This is the the fruit on the ground that the bees haven't touched yet. It's like, pick it up and eat it. (laughs) This is crazy to let it to go to waste. 1.4 billion trees planted and grown for 10 years. Let that sink in. And it's the equivalent of um, 100 million acres of U.S. forest in uh, uh, what it captures in one year or preserving 559,000 acres of U.S. forest um, from being converted to cropland. So this is data directly out of the EPA um, calculators. This goes to prove that every city in the country should have their own sawmill. Every city in the country should have some type of reprocessing program. And every city in the country could have a back to work just by using timber with all their incarcerated people who are released every year. I mean, it's like a no-brainer. It is, and I'm going to expand on that a little bit. I'll agree with almost everything you said with a little bit of a caveat on every city having its own sawmill. I don't really recommend the cities themselves operating the sawmill and the right. business. But uh, there should be one they, in each city. There should be very close by. Uh, I, I, I highly recommend that it's private industry. I have a strong opinion that governments are designed to be governments. They're not designed to run businesses. Uh, so they're designed to help the local businesses and the local economy and the local you know, public. And there are quite a few. There's a whole lot more than we realize as far as urban mills all over the country. There are a huge number of them. They're very disconnected. They're very under-supported, and they're definitely not connected to the municipal trees. And that's a challenge, and that's exactly what Urban Ashes is now focused on, is building that system and implementing that system, but then managing that system. So creating a log yard uh, in a municipal area where X number of, you know, let's say there's five mills in that general area, they have a consistent access to a supply chain. That's been one of the biggest challenges for the urban wood industry is consistency. And once you set up a system in the city, dilemma with cities, they, you know, they have limited resources. So what we do is we come in and become their advocate to create this system 
and really teach them how to do it. But then we manage it. We'll manage the log yard and make sure that we find the proper mills that know how to process these logs. Then even beyond that, work with the mills to make sure that they have end markets, that they have manufacturers to sell this to, you know, whether it's you know, furniture manufacturers, whether it's biochar, whether it's you know, thermally modified wood. There are all kinds of materials or resources out there for manufacturing that are not connected to the urban wood industry. And it's, a, it's just a matter of education. It's a matter of setting standards. Standards is a huge thing. And I know you had Jennifer Alger on here before. And her organization, USRW, is extremely focused on developing those standards. We're in our first year of those standards being public. And that's a big game changer and making things more consistent. So because you know, the specifiers, whether that's a manufacturer, but can I need to specify these woods for, but you know, this is volume that we're talking about potentially too. And getting into architects, you know, they're not going to specify something that they can't stand behind. They don't understand what the consistency is going to be. And so now that we have built that consistency or are building that consistency would be more accurate and have those standards um, getting in place. Now architects and designers and the other specifiers, builders and, and manufacturers can much more comfortably start specifying and utilizing these materials. Yeah. And in fact, in, in the building trade, it's, it's quite scary that a lot of people don't even know how to use wood because they're using so much plastic. And there's another example where we don't need to use plastic if we have all this wood. Great example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're generating, you know, I look at a lot of things. Um, it's, we're, unfortunately, I think the nature of humans is we're always looking for what's the next shiny object or we got to use, you know, we need to create something new. And unfortunately, in the process of that, we end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater and we yeah. throw out all these incredible resources that not only you know perform equally, perform better, and are better for the environment. They're better for us when you're you know talking about indoor spaces or outdoor spaces and biophilia. And uh, you know, yeah. what does it feel like to walk into a room that's all wood floors and wood ceiling and even wood cladding? And you know, compare that to walking into a room that's all plastic. I guarantee it. They will. Those rooms will impact you dramatically differently. And we're even having human health issues over it now because of closed environments. And there's another case. Yeah, yeah, and the off-gassing. And that's what that's exactly what drove me to alternatives was the the fumes and the off-gassing. I was mm -hmm. literally killing myself with materials I was using. I was milling sheet PVC and I loved it because it was quieter than milling wood. And it, yeah, it kind of smelled a little bit. And then, you know, 10 years later, I realized, you know, when you're milling it at high speeds, it's releasing dioxin. I'm like, great. <laughs> I look at what's dioxin. I, uh, ignorance is bliss. Can I go back to not, you know, oh, uh, knowing that what that is? That is so funny. That takes me right back to wood shop in, uh, in junior high and milling plastic and like, wow, what an interesting smell. Same yeah. with building model airplanes, you know, and the, uh, the, the, pla the, the plastic glue. and the glue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's another big, you know, I had, I've been in the hospital twice from becoming toxic from MEK or methyl ethyl ketone. Mm. Uh, and that is plumbers show up on it. If I'm working on a job site for whatever reason or in a, in a friend's house, and they're building something and the plumbers show up to work on stuff, I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, yes. Because they're with all the PVC pipe, that PVC glue, pretty much the number one ingredient in there is MEK and it is a solvent and it is literally melting the PVC to fuse back to itself. I wouldn't call that glue. I would call it a solvent that's melting the plastic. Yeah. Uh, and I run, for, I know that smell in a heartbeat now and goodbye. I'm, I'm out. Sure. Wow. Wow. Paul, I'm still reeling with the statistics that you just articulated so well in terms of what we stand to gain through proper processing. And for the listeners, again, that want to dig a little deeper, is there some links you can give us so that people can confirm what they just heard? Because Sure. I mean, that's extrapolated from several pieces of information. So most of that is based off of um, work done by a U.S. Forest Service uh, research researcher, David Nowak, which you probably all know who David is. Yep. Um, so the base numbers, that 46 million metric tons is coming directly from uh, David's research. Okay. 
Um, and you can find you can find that's sort of where it all starts. Um, and then there's the ge- there's the general uh, understanding that uh, woods on average are 50 percent carbon by weight. So then you can you know cut basically take that 46 and cut it in half. And then you down to 23, you can go to the EPA calculator, plug in 23 million metric tons, hit return, and it will give you all the equivalents of like how many cars that is driving a year, how many, you know, how, to, how many coal plants is that? And you get to the go down to the very bottom, it'll tell you the relevance to the trees. And, okay. it, uh, and it gives you that specifically coming from the EPA. So that's how those numbers are done. Yeah, we also have your your links, all your company links and connections um, on the website, just FYI for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, Urban Ashes, yeah, our website has you know, some information. We're probably, we are in the process of updating some things. There's a, we produced a really nice video that covers our circular urban wood trichotomy model that gives numbers on a small scale as our pilot model was in Ann Arbor. So it can kind of show you how it impacts the city of 120,000. But then also in that video, it talks about the national scale um, and gives those numbers. So those are in there and it's about an eight minute video, but it kind of goes over the process of this is not anything that's that's difficult. We were doing this um, up until a hundred years ago or so. Actually, Detroit has what I believe is the oldest mill in the country that was dedicated uh, specifically to milling urban trees out on Belle Isle. And it's in the process of being restored. It was created or started in, I think, 1905 or six, I believe. Uh, somebody can check me on that, but roughly you know, early 1900s, it ran up into the early 80s. It was operational and then it was abandoned. Um, they're in the process of restoring it. It will not become a fully functional mill again. It will be more of a demonstration as part of a museum to showcase mm-hmm. sort of what we could do. And That's great. Um, but you know, we, we were doing this. We weren't, especially, you know, Detroit was known as an incredible tree city. And so they realized at some point, these trees are coming down. Why are we just throwing them away? Yeah, this is nuts. And so they were repurposing those back into buildings during the boom of you know of Detroit. So I would venture to bet some of the spectacular buildings in Detroit are loaded with trees that grew on the streets of Detroit. Now these are you know our mantra both at the Urban Wood Network and just in general is always trees first, wood next. You know you want the tree to go through and live as absolutely long as possible. But when it does have to come down for whatever reason, make sure a you honor the tree. I mean that's another that's just sort of a more of a personal you know, human thing is that you know, this tree has done so many great things for us during its life. I use a quote from a, a young 14-year-old. I worked on a project and you made, that, made this comment earlier and it reminds me of the video I did with them about why it's so important to recycle our urban trees. That was the title of the, of the video. And at the end of shooting this video, we kind of went through the whole process of what it's like to all the steps and all the various stakeholders. We went and interviewed all the stakeholders. So starting from a landowner to a tree service taking down a tree, to a mill, to a manufacturer, to a retailer, to an end user. And we interviewed all of the kids did. The kids interviewed all these. And at the end, I finally, I came back to the three kids, one of them being my son, uh, and asked him, okay, now why do you guys think it's important to recycle our urban trees? My son listened to me really well and, and he sounded like me, which was great, but it's, you know, it was definitely, he was, you know, hearing me. The other two kids were just classic kid, break it down, keep it simple. One said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but one said, yo, it's cheaper to bring trees from across the street than from Brazil. Okay, so <laughs> that was that was one. Yeah. Or the last yep. one was the one to me that was so profound. The last one was the young man said, why would we simply destroy something that we can't live without? Oh. And, you know, it's like, just leave it to a kid, you know, cut to the chase. You know, this is it. Why are we destroying? You know, it's literally trees are gone. We're dead. You know, we don't, humanity doesn't exist without trees. Wow. This is such a dishonor to to that, to to something we have to Mm -hmm. have to survive. Yeah. Well, on that note, you had kind of mentioned in your talk and in a roundabout way, the Urban Wood Network. And can you kind of give us a little bit about your connection with it and how you became one of the original founders of it and how important it is to all of us nationally as an organization. 
Absolutely. So I mentioned in the beginning that in 2002, helped start the original Urban Wood Project in Southeast Michigan. One of those folks that was part of that, uh, who became the leader of that group, Jessica Simons, uh, and you should definitely have Jessica on here. If you want some real history on urban wood utilization, Jessica is a, is a great one. Uh, Jessica became, you know, I refer to her as the, you know, the leading evangelist across the country about urban wood utilization. Without Jessica, we would not have had the Urban Wood Project. We would not probably have the Urban Wood Network, at least not as we know it now. Uh, but anyways, the Urban Wood Project grew to include, I want to say about 15 uh, mills, mostly in the Michigan area. Uh, but Jessica was going around the country and partnering with other states, definitely through the Great Lakes, but also getting out to California and to other parts of the country. And fast forward to about 2014, 2015, a lot of collaborations started going on through a U.S. forest grant between Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Missouri. And from that, by 2017, the Urban Wood Network was launched as a national organization. organization. So it basically pulled the Urban Wood Project being pretty much a Southeast Michigan organization into that and then expanded, including quite a bit going on in Wisconsin and in Illinois, also due to the Emerald Ash Board. It was This was very much driven by a response to the EAB. And that launched the uh, Urban Wood Network in 2017 officially. And 2019, shortly thereafter, started doing a lot of work with back in California, which is where I got my introduction to it, with an organization called USRW, or Urban Salvage and Reclaim Wood, which I'm connecting back to Jennifer Alger again. They had started a kind of a similar organization out there that had a lot of members out west. And what happened is we decided to bring those members in under the Urban Wood Network flag and sort of, sort of merge forces there. But USRW continues on um, and sort of allowed them to focus more on the standards. And that's USRW's focus now is pretty much 100% on standards and developing that. And then Urban Wood Network became more the membership national organization that definitely endorses uh, the USRW uh, Urban Wood standards. And so that's kind of, and then there was, there's pockets all over the country too. And we're, we're slowly bringing different pockets you know, into the national uh, organization. And ultimately, uh, you know, we're very much about uh, education to the public and education to the industry. But really, we don't survive or the industry doesn't survive if we're not selling wood. You know, we have to sell wood to the public, to the retailers. And so this is very much about engaging with end markets, building end markets and all of those things. So that's a big focus. Most of our members are for-profit small mills, manufacturers, and making sure that the general public understands how they can access this material how those businesses can better sell their material, process it, and, and get it out there. Because if we're just sitting on these logs or sitting on you know, lumber that's not going to get utilized, it'll ultimately decay and, and we're back sort of in the same situation. So that's so the Urban Wood Network is very much driven to focus on all the different stakeholders that you need to sell lumber. And I have to disclose that my company that I have, we joined the Urban Wood Network back in 2018 because we thought that looking at this company, you know, uh, this organization, we're like, why aren't more people involved in this? So we became an advocate. We're a member advocate. And maybe that's Thank why you. we have so many of you on our podcast. <laughs> it, it just goes naturally with planting trees and the tree life cycle. And as the gentleman from West Coast Arborist said, from seed to senescence, <laughs> look at the whole process, the whole cycle. And it, it's really critical for everyone when we think about how important trees are. They spend their whole life putting on wood and storing carbon. Why wouldn't we want to reutilize that when the life yeah. is ended? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, John, I'm assuming that was John Mahoney. Uh, it yes, sounds it like was. a John Mahoney quote to me. Yes. Uh, or Big John, otherwise known as. Yes. Uh, but that's, you know, it's, that's absolutely right. Yeah, you know, so it's... It's an incredible resource that's out there. You know, when, when Urban Wood Network started in 2017, I was so involved with Urban Ashes in particular. We were grant we being Urban Ashes were grandfathered or you know automatically brought in as a founding member of the Urban Wood Network because we were a founding member of the Urban Wood Project. Right. Um, and then we continued to be a member uh, ever since. 
And once I shifted um, in tw- 2019 is when he closed our manufacturing down to focus on building infrastructure and working with municipalities and building markets. That's when I got much more involved with Urban Wood Network. And, and you know, historically, both the Urban Wood Project and Urban Wood Network were both projects underneath other nonprofits. Um, and one of the big things about three years ago in uh, annual strategic planning meeting, uh, the pretty much the number one thing everybody was focused on, it was time. We had gotten so big that the parent nonprofit companies really couldn't keep up with us. So it was, it was time to spin off and become our own nonprofit. So um, earlier this year, Urban Wood Network Inc. is its own standalone 501c3. We are waiting for our final IRS uh, documentation. So I always flip which one's worth it. Are we uh, currently a nonprofit and not a 501c3? I think we're a 501c, but not a nonprofit. But I forget which one comes first. But anyways, we're very close to having that all wrapped up. Uh, which is pretty exciting. And I'm, I, I am on the, the national interim board and we are, for those who are listening, we are looking for new board members. You can find information on the Urban Wood Network website regarding that, which is just urbanwoodnetwork.org. Uh, we are definitely looking for board members, advisory board members. If you don't like boards and you want like doing stuff, just getting stuff done, there'll be committee work, all kinds of stuff. We definitely need uh, help. Thank you for that. That's good. That's good for our listeners. Yes. Uh, hopefully you're going to get some responses along those lines. Let me just rapid fire a few things for you, Paul. Absolutely. Some questions. Uh, this is actually probably the bigger of the, of the couple that I have is every time we've had a guest on to talk about Urban Wood, I think about the marketing challenges. Like I have a neighbor doing a porch repair right now. He's probably made three runs to the big box stores. He's, I'm sorry, he's made, what is he making? He's uh, repairing the porch, the front porch, the wooden porch. So, you know, he knows that I have this interest in repurposing urban wood and there's, you know, some uh, places that he can pick things up. Marketing urban wood seems like will will always be the challenge, right? So that the contractor can say, okay, I'm going to let go of the convenience of going up to the big box store and go to the local outlet. And uh, I'm also thinking of... um, a, a couple I know that have worked extremely hard in the metro Chicago area to get their product out, you know, and that again would be Ash and uh, Norway Maple and stuff like that. Is it still a hard sell to contractors to get them to say, okay, I get it, I'll do it? Uh, it's not as hard as it used to be, heavily driven because of the standards and the consistency of the supply chain. Uh, the longer we do this, and the more it's around, uh, I mean, you can kind of go back and look at, and I kind of equate this to, let's say, FSC certification. So when FSC first came out, that was a hard sell. It was a very hard sell. And I can vividly remember when I was working at Eco Timber circa 98, 99, when Home Depot decided to come on board and said, okay, we're going to start selling FSC products. We were incredibly excited, but also kind of terrified. You know, what's going to happen here is, is, is are, are the standards going to get watered down? Are they going to take over and, and kind of ruin what we started? Or is this really, you know, the, I don't want to say the silver bullet, but this is the huge jump to get this out into the market. Little of both. And, and now FSC is so ubiquitous. It's on, you know, pick up a box of tissue and, and look on the bottom side. You know, there's a good chance that 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 packaging is FSC, you know, certified. So it's a process and, you know, our goal and hope and, you know, 10 years from now or sooner if possible that, you know, you're going to pick up that box and it's going to be, you know, USRW urban wood certified that it's going to come from, you know, pallets are a big one that those are coming from urban wood and that's stamped USRW certified. So to answer your question, it's still, it's always going to be an ongoing sell. It's getting less and less the more we do it. The more we're on podcasts, the more you know we get out in the public. I will say, you know, when I started Urban Ashes in 2009, and it was focused on picture frames, and I'm bringing in urban wood into the picture frame world. I might as well have been an alien. Hardwood in general is a challenge in the picture frame world these days. There's a lot of woods or solid wood, should I say? There's a lot of solid woods in the picture frame industry, except it's often coated with gesso and and coatings and uh, foil wraps and other things that basically hide all the wood. The wood just becomes the substructure and they're often all finger jointed. 
So you lose all the unique characteristics, uh, the visual characteristics of wood. And that's a challenge. We get so used to this consistent, you know, we know it's going to be dead perfect. And, and when I started Urban Ashes, I was trying to compete against that. And I realized pretty damn quickly that I got to go the other way. I got to embrace the character. I got to embrace what it is. But that I spent a ton of education with all of our retailers, explaining to them and providing them the information. And, but also really, we have to meet them too, because customers, particularly in a, this is sort of a microcosm, but it's a really good example for really any manufacturer that's going to utilize urban wood, is that if you walk into a picture frame store and you look up on the wall and look at all the samples that are on the wall and you pull down corners and you, know, you, you look at it against your art and you pick one, you expect your frame to look exactly like that little tiny corner sample. And that's not reality with urban wood. Right. Or with wood, period, with solid yeah, wood. Right. Yeah, with solid wood, yeah, it's wood. It's going to be different. And you have to embrace that and you have to explain that. And so what we did in our samples, you know, we had to build into our samples a range of what the character could be. And But then we also had to grade to that in our shop and say, okay, we can't go outside of this grade of character unless they specifically request it. You know, we would get some requests where one of my favorites was coming out of a, uh, a woman who had a shop in, in Lexington, Kentucky, and she'd often call me up and say, give me the most roached out wood you got, uh, which I thought was, <laughs> I always loved that term. <laughs> and I was like, okay, man, all bets are off. Uh, you know, as long as it was, it was structurally sound and it didn't, you know, we, there was a couple rules, but for the most part, and then when anybody would look at that frame, they're like, oh my God, this is spectacular. And it has to work, obviously, with artwork because frame is a complement to the artwork. You don't want it to dominate. But it's that way with any product. You have to. And I think I heard this recently. You know, the folks at Room and Board, if you haven't had them, any of them on. Uh, what was that, they, Room and Board? Yeah, from Room and Board, who's a very a national retailer um, who is selling an urban wood and deconstructed line. Um, and several multiple Urban Wood Network members uh, manufacture for them. But what they realized is we have to design for the wood. We can't make the wood match our design. We have to design for the wood. So getting right. the designers uh, out into the mills and understanding what the process is and what's available, well, what it does is it also opens up their eyes and goes, oh my God, I didn't realize this was all available to me. This yeah. is going to be a whole lot more fun. You know, my palette just got a whole lot bigger. So it's about connecting those designers to the mills, but then even all the way back to connecting them to architects, you know, to the forest and understanding where these products are coming from, honoring them in a way that continues that thread from the tree all the way to the end product. Right. And then it makes it much more human and you get away from, you know, you know where's your steak from the grocery store? You know, where's your wood from? Uh, you know, the lumber store. No, it's from a tree. You know? yeah, <laughs> and sure. where did that tree grow? And what did it do? And, you know, all of those things. And it was in a forest and uh, it provided all these resources. Let me ask you an equipment related question, uh, Paul. So we've had Jennifer on from, uh, I think she was from the Sacramento area. And then right. we're here based in Philly. Seems to me that can these mills handle trees of any diameter? In other words, we have tulip tree out here that's going to, you know, sometimes exceed 42, 44 inches. I'm assuming West Coast must have. I was going to say, when was the last time you were in California? I've told Jennifer, it's like, this isn't fair. You got to, you know, on, she, she manages the uh, Urban Wood Network Instagram page. I said, stop posting all the West Coast photos. We're getting a little envy, you know, jealous of the size. Yeah, because they're big. Uh, they're you know, so, big trees out oh, there. Oh, they're ridiculous. You know, whereas, so, you know, in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, 42 inches is, is pretty, you know, that's a behemoth. Uh, yeah. In California, that's, that's a mid-sized tree. <laughs> yeah. So can those mills handle wood of that size? Uh, if it's yes. coming out of, okay. And is it still the, the band saws? Uh, yes and no. Uh, yeah, yes, for the most part. Uh, it, when you're getting to those those very large sizes, often they're custom made. Okay. You know, the mill that I've been working with forever, a mill called Turvel's Wood Products in in South Central Michigan. Jason built uh, their mill custom. It is a bandsaw. It's on railroad tracks, and it can mill up to uh, six feet in diameter. 
Uh, okay. So you can go up to 72 inches, which you're not going to really see bigger than 72 inches in the mid, you know, in Michigan or the upper Midwest. Oh, and then the age old question about metal that urban wood is. Yeah, metal is, it's kind of a misnomer. Um, I mean, it, it's based in reality and it's based historically accurately. It's kind of a misnomer now, should I say. It is an issue. I don't mean that it's not an issue, but it's not an issue that um, makes it impossible by any means. Pretty much anybody who gets into milling urban wood knows that that exists and you have to accept that and you have to deal with it. And there's multiple ways of dealing with it. But before I even get into that, the other difference is if you're looking at a big production mill, so some of the largest urban mills in the country are doing you know, 2 million board feet a year, 3 million board feet a year, which sounds big, but you get into particularly some of the soft mills that are, you know, up in, you know, Oregon and, and Washington that they'll do that in a week, you know, so they're, they're big production. And so if they have a blade go down and they hit metal, so they're scanning in the, in the big production ones, they're scanning all their trees before their logs, before they go through. And if it's got metal, that's good, they're concerned about, they kick that out. Even if it's a, you know, a veneer grade, uh, log, if there's too much metal in it, it's kicked out because it's not worth it to them. The big reason is it's not necessarily so much damage to the the equipment. What it is, it shuts down their production line. And so now when you've got a big production line that like that, and you've got 20, 30 people relying on that line continually moving, that shuts down. You've got 20, 30 people doing nothing for the next hour, hour and a half, because many of them are specialized. You know, they're not you know, trained to be, you know, it's like, oh, stop what you're doing. Go do something else for an hour. It's like they're standing around. In an urban mill, you know, you'll have an urban mill, for example, you know, the mill in, in Southeast Michigan, you know, they're doing roughly half a million board feet a year and it's run by three people. And that mill, if they hit metal and, and blow out a blade, bandsaw blades, first of all, are a whole lot cheaper and they're easier to replace now. They can, they can flip that out pretty quick. But if they've got, you know, the other two people working when they're milling, that's only two people. And I guarantee you in a mill that size with that number of people, they're all cross-trained. So it's mm -hmm. like, okay, while well, you're changing the blade, I'm going to go stack lumber. I'm going to you know, go check on the kiln and make sure this is all going right. So that's a big part of it. But then the other part is knowing how to deal with the metal. Okay. You know, the, the, the scanners are a lot better now and identifying where it is. Certain cases, it's like, oh, that's you know a small amount of metal. It's going to hit the blade. You know, I'm going to throw on a rough blade initially and, and a blade that's already beat up and just let it rip. If okay. it's a big chunk um, and it's an area that, uh, you know, it's in the middle of the log. This was a 16-foot log and it's right in the middle. I'm going to just cut it out and, and I'm going to mill two seven-foot logs instead of gotcha. that 16. Uh, concrete, that's a little different story. Concrete, yeah, well, that's you know, a whole yeah, because you can't, yeah, you, know, you don't scan for that as easily, right? And it does as much, if not more. And you'd be amazed at how many people like to pour concrete into their trees to, you know, help heal their trees. So concrete's a, a challenge. How has it been taking your organizations and your initiatives to the municipal arborists and the tree care industry? Do you find typically? pretty good receptivity or is there some pushback? Well, it depends on who you're talking to uh, in a municipality. Uh, the forestry department, if they have a forestry department, typically get it. I, you know, I would argue pretty much anybody who works in any kind of you know, the forestry world hates to see a tree get chipped. You know, it's just they're in there because they love trees. Um, and right. hate to see, I mean, that's just a crime when they see that. And they, you know, so that they're generally pretty easy. You know, getting into the public works folks um, or, you know, the administration sort of above that, that are running the projects and even city council and, you know, mayors and things like that, it may take a little bit more. You know, for us, the research that we do on the front end, we'll, we'll come in and do life cycle assessments with your municipality and, and look at their, what's their business as usual and be able to turn around. A good example is Ann Arbor. Um, we, Ann Arbor loses roughly 600 trees a year and they plant a thousand trees a year. And their thought is, okay, we're, you know, doing pretty well. We're staying ahead of the game. And when we ran the, the numbers and, and looked at, you know, what's going into removing these trees, looking at all the equipment, all the, the emissions from that, first of all, it's less than 1% of the uh, emissions emitted in the whole tree removal process comes from the equipment and transportation. 99% or greater comes from the log being wasted or being chipped. So Amazing. go after the log. Thank you. So anyways, what we did 
is we were able to show you know on a slide and the presentation to the head of public works, which is often you know the gate the real gatekeeper is public works. And when I can turn turn to them and show them, we were able to show them you're losing six hundred, planting a thousand. Now you're going to have to plant eighteen thousand trees a year to make up for that first year of loss. And you're planting a thousand. You're not even close. Or yeah. you can look at it another way. You're going to have to plant a thousand trees a year for well over ten years to catch up for year one. And immediately, that the head of public works said to me, "Can you send me that slide? Because that was the straw that broke the camel's back." And a lot of it depends on if municipalities have a sustainability department, a sustainability officer, if they are acknowledging carbon. Once they realize the carbon magnitude, and and it's like, and now I can turn around and say, you know. It's like equivalent. How many trees are you planting? And we're planting this and, you know, we're doing great doing that. And I said, well, you know, if you actually captured all your wood, you would, you know, increase that tenfold. And yeah. it's a whole lot easier than planting trees and maintaining them for 10 years. So that's the, that's the key. The other thing I wanted to mention is, and I think Hal alluded to it, do you have arborists who are in support of once they take a tree down, they bring it to the municipality or they bring it to the mill. Do you have arborists that are jumping on that easily? You're talking about a private arborist? Yeah, the private arborists. Do they do, they do that? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Okay. That's good to know. So they're already, uh, the private arborists already are aware. Yeah, like I said, they're the ones often that... <laughs> So, you know, Wood from the Hood is a good example, which is one of the larger uh, mills in the country and, and, and manufacturers and is an urban wood network out of Minneapolis. They wood were looking from the at hood. <laughs> Wood from the Hood. Yeah, about that. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's like, we can't, we can't keep wasting these trees. This is crazy. Right. So, um, and arborists, a lot of the mills are arborists first because they realize what's being wasted. Right. Uh, and it's like, you know, hey, we're going to add a mill to this, uh, you know, because, you know, Live Edge Detroit is a perfect example. Uh, Live Edge Detroit came out of an organization called you know, Mike's Tree Surgeons. It was Mike's Tree Surgeons. And then Live Edge Detroit became another part of Mike's Tree Surgeons. I believe Hoppy outside of Chicago is the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were a tree service and added the mill. So they're very aware of it. Our system in particular, our, our circular wood trichotomy model, we focus on building the infrastructure with the municipality first because they are doing the highest right. volume as a single entity and they have the most capacity to build the, the space and the log yard and then start introducing both other municipalities in the area to be able to feed that, the municipalities that don't have the infrastructure uh, or the capacity. And then the last one introduced the private arborist. But trying to get all the private arborists in the beginning is a challenge because you're now, it's like going right. from wholesale to retail. You know, when you go to retail, you've got a hundred arborists now you're dealing with instead of, yeah. you know, one or five. And, you're, you know, they're bringing one log every three months instead of you know, 20 logs a month. We have to wrap it up, but I wanted to ask you the question that we always ask our listeners. And that is, what is your favorite tree or group of trees that kind of speak to you on a spiritual level. So are we talking trees or wood? Living trees. Living trees that you can go and hug. Living trees. Um, one of my favorite living trees is I love red oak. I love red oak canopies. I also, there's a couple other ones, mainly because where I grew up, I do love tulip trees, uh, tulip poplars. I always love the leaves on them. And you know, probably really at the top is, again, as a Midwest kid, sycamores. You know, I really love sycamores. You know, they've got incredible bark, very unique, easy to identify. It's like, I know what that tree is. So I always like that. And that's a really underutilized species as a wood. Tulip is, is used quite a bit. And sort of the irony here, and I do just want to throw this in on the red oak, where I said it's one of my favorite trees. It's one of my least favorite woods, though. But I'm working on that. I'm working on some stuff with red oak because of oak wilt. So I'm trying to get over that. Exactly. Paul, this has been absolutely fantastic. We've learned so much. And the things you touched on in terms of wood chips and the absolute need for us all to get behind the Urban Wood Network for sustained processing of the trees that we harvest. So thank you so much for your wisdom and your knowledge. It was great, Paul. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for having me. Never have a problem talking about trees and wood. (laughs) Well, thanks again and take care. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.